Easter has come and gone, and it seems almost too good to be true. So appropriate to sing this song, and can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? At the dawning of Easter every year, the church comes alive in all its parts. It finds a height of praise that the church ascends to that, that always amazes and draws together God's people. And yet, even in the midst of all that that is going on, even in the midst of the following week where we just feel so at peace with God knowing how much God loves us, we start inching back into our old habits. We start finding our comfortable ruts. We start petting our pet sins. And sinners, we still are. Maybe that's why they call this Sunday Low Sunday. Oh, there's a formal name for why they call this Sunday Low Sunday on the church calendar, but I'm not going to put you to sleep with that explanation. Sometimes it's called Low Sunday for the simple fact that attendance always seems so low on the Sunday after Easter. That's not the real reason it's Low Sunday. Trust me. We're better than that. And it's not always the case, although it almost always is the case, that churches are filled so much more on Easter than they are the Sunday after Easter. And if we're not careful, we, our hearts and minds can wander to that reality and we can get caught up in the dwelling on it. But I don't think that's what we're to do today. I think, however, we are to behave in a different way, even like our music has led us to, our own expression and worship of the same God that we worshiped last Sunday when we gathered in this place. Christ has risen. A little slow, aren't you? I told you it was low Sunday. It's hard, isn't it? Christ is risen. We sing and we shouted and we read and we applauded and we laughed inside ourselves at the very thought that Christ would rescue us from our own sinfulness. So the question is, so why does so much of the church struggle with Christian blahs the week after Easter? Well, you know, the band was good today. We had a new song. At least it was new to me. I think Good Good Father was new. Was it new? Where is David? Where is he out there? It's new. Thank you. It's new to some of us. It's not new to all of us. But they sang their hearts out as always, and we felt the spirit of worship as we always do. But, you know, it just is not yet this morning got to be like last Sunday, has it? I mean, now, like last Sunday, you'd have had to be aboard not to be affected by the worship. And not just here, but in places around the world. Easter brings out the best in people and in the church. And yet the Sunday afterward is usually a struggle. It's called low Sunday for many reasons as I've already mentioned but for whatever the reason it's because we get back to normalcy I think and normalcy is a dangerous place it's the reason why the church designates every Sunday as a little Easter every Sunday is a reenactment and a reliving of the Easter experience because we need that weekly we need to know weekly and we need to celebrate weekly and we need to 
reenact, if you will, what went on that day a long time ago on that Sunday morning when Christ arose from the dead. And you say, well, Easter is a lot of trouble. I didn't say you had to go and buy new dresses. I didn't say you had to go buy boxes of candy to hide out under the trees or let the Easter bunny hide out under the trees, whatever your case may be. Just saying, Easter bunny. I didn't say that you had to go and put on your best clothes. All I'm saying is that the energy you bring to worship on Easter tends to be a little different sometimes than the routine of the energy we bring to worship on a regular basis. Now, part of that is because we are creatures of habit. We don't really expect things to be that different unless Nick is making the announcements. <laughs> then we're never quite for sure what we're going to have, but, you know, it's always or mostly entertaining. And it does at least wake us up, doesn't it? I think this text here is trying to tell us something much more difficult. This is part of the lectionary readings for this Sunday in the year B of the Christian calendar. And this text in 1 John has always bothered me somewhat throughout this, this letter of 1 John because you get so contorted in it, you know? God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all, and we should be children of the light, and we should not sin, but we do. Well, what does that mean? If we, if we should not sin, and yet we do, and that's our constant experience, what does it mean in light of Easter? What is John really trying to say in this text? He is trying to say something that's a little bit unique in many ways, I think, that he does not accentuate here in this part of the book so much about doctrine or so much about right belief or about even Christian actions as he does accentuate koinonia, Christian fellowship, the fellowship we have with the Father and the Son and with one another as believers. He seems to land there as that thing that should unite the church. And in the midst of our struggling, in the midst of our continual sinning, in the midst of our being human, if you will, that's why a lot of Sundays feel like low Sundays. Unless we lie to our sins, to ourselves rather, and come to church acting as if there's no sin in us at all. The people that I'm most sorry for are those who actually come to churches and think that they are really all that much better than those who are doing evil things in the world. Because you see, those Christians are in great danger of the fires of hell. They are in great danger of walking away from the faith that Jesus exemplified and taught, much more so than those who come worrying about their relationship in a sense, working on their relationship, constantly realizing they're never attaining, yet constantly straining to be that ideal picture that we see presented of Christians in the Scripture. But when one thinks they're already there, one tends to look down one's nose at those who are making no outward efforts to be a part of the church. And that's a shame that they're looking down on them, and it's a shame that they're not in church somewhere. I'm going to get to all of that. It's going to be a long sermon, right? Not so much. Because it's a little bit too pointed to stay too long here. We'll get to feeling bad. But let's go ahead and talk about the S word. The big word that most churches don't like to speak about. And our culture doesn't want to hear that word we call sin. We don't like to talk about sin because it's always relative, at least in our own minds. In my mind, sin is mostly about what y'all are doing, not about what I'm doing. And you think it's mostly about what you're not doing rather than what the preacher thinks you're doing. 
I mean, there's stuff going around all over the place, and most of the stuff is only partially true biblically. And most of the stuff that is talked about in regard to sin is only used as a tool oftentimes to make me feel better. Come on, you are glad this morning that you're not a part of the sex trade. You're glad you're not that person. You would never want to be that person. You would never be that person. But have you not committed murder with your words at times in your life? Have you not slain someone's spirit by your actions? Have you not done something that is just as awful to God? You say, no, it couldn't be as awful as that. You know, the trouble with sin is God hates it all. That's the way God is. God hates all sin. Now, really the worst sin in the world is not the sin of sexual trade. The greatest sin in the world is doing anything that anyone might do that hurts my family. That's the biggest sin in the world. Hurt my family, and you've got a problem. You're a big sinner. Shame on you. Or maybe you feel that way about someone hurting you or threatening yours. Certainly that's why when we mention a topic like the sex trade in our own city, in our own state, and we realize that the United States has more of that sin than any place else, it leaves us almost without words. If it doesn't leave you without words, then you're not listening to your soul. It's pathetic to think that other human beings, adults, will enslave the young and the helpless, stealing them at every chance they get and using them so that they might earn money, satisfying someone else's evil desires. That reality is dark. But most of us, I hope all of us, can talk about that sin and feel really bad about it, but we know that is not us. That is not who we are. That is not what we do. And that's right. It is not what we do. But sin is far more insidious than simply something, talking about something that is an act or an action. You see, sin and the reality of sin has as much to do with our state or condition inside us as it does the actions that we make or take. It has a lot to do with those things we don't do as much as it has to do with those things we do do. Sin has to do with unrighteousness. Sin has to do with lawlessness. Sin has to do with missing the mark of what God has called us to do and who God has called us to be. There are five, at least five Greek words in the New Testament that they use for sin. Actually, I think there's six, but only my late night work last night or evening work was only remembering five. So five made it to the paper. But fortunately, most of them share many things in common. The most commonly used word, amatia, the Greek word talks about missing the mark. It is a disposition and an action. We are sinners by disposition. And sometimes that sin becomes evident in the actions we take or don't take. But that is no more different, whether it's an action or a condition, than it is just being a condition. God hates it all. It is our constant struggle not to be selfish. Most people I see deny their sinfulness regularly. They don't even recognize it. They lack the biblical knowledge to understand that even their thoughts can be sinful. 
that even what they're thinking someone else can be doing and the judgment they feel in their heart can be a sin against God. We become kind of people who like to deny our sin by talking about sin that other people do. That's the most fun kind of sin to preach about, by the way. You know, because when you get to preaching about sin that nobody in the church is doing, it's an amen Sunday. Amen! You know, amen, brother. They ought to be punished, you know. Oh, I forgot. I'm not supposed to be unforgiving. Uh, See how easy it is? Even when we're right, we can be wrong. And even when we're wrong, we can be right. Isn't that weird? For instance, if I were to come upon someone in a store in Carrollton, Texas, that I just started a conversation with, and I found out that they were in the store with two other persons who were going to take her forcibly from that store back into the life that they were forcing her into. Well, that would be a sin, I'm sure. And there's a very good chance that what I would do next in response to that knowledge could be sinful as well. Very sinful. Deathly sinful. Painfully sinful. How could I watch them take some young girl out of of the store if I learned that? I would have to go to the aisle where they sell the pots and the pans, the frying pans, the heavy ones, the hard ones. I would have to pass judgment on their actions if not their soul. I would have to hurt them. And I am capable. I know that. And you are too. There's probably a better way of rescuing the girl than looking for the frying pan. That would be my first thought. My second thought, I hope, would be to take out my phone and dial 911 and keep her engaged until the police arrived and then they could do their police thing. You know, and they wouldn't have knots on their heads. They'd just be put in handcuffs and taken away. But, you see, in my anger, I'm not sure what I'd do. Fortunately, we'll... Probably never run into that, but we will run into other things that are sin. We'll struggle with on how we're to respond. And we're pretty sure that however we respond is the right way to respond. (laughs) See, there's where the trouble comes. There's where the trouble comes. We struggle with this thing called sin, but we don't think our sins are very important compared to the sins of others. After all, if you're a good Christian in church, your sins are a lot smaller than those who aren't in church, right? It's a complicated topic. And once we get away from the glory of Easter and we get back to our regular life, we find ourselves slipping away from that closeness perhaps we had attained during Lent. You know, the joy we have of whatever it is that we gave up on Easter, we've now taken back, right? One woman was talk- girl was talking to me about that, and she said, uh, well, really, I gave up online shopping and at first I almost laughed out loud but fortunately I didn't and then she went on to say because I was online every day buying stuff all the time and then I realized she was serious and then I realized that she kept on talking about it. it is really hard not to buy anything I bought about two days before Lent started my last thing online and it arrived on Ash Wednesday And because it arrived on Ash Wednesday, I could at least open one more thing before the end of Lent. (laughs) And she talked about how she had felt. She said, it was a struggle. And then she said, 
But you know what? I think I've conquered it now. Now that I've lived through it for 40 days, I think I'm not going to shop on online like I did so much, spending so much money. And all her people said amen probably. Now, this passage starts out in a strange place for us. I'm going to hit three quick points, and I'm going to be through. First of all, it talks about what was from the beginning, what we have heard and what we have seen with our eyes and what we've looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That is talking about the great reality of incarnation. And he goes on to talk about this great reality of incarnation in such a way, this idea of God becoming flesh, that it is, becomes the crucial point that he's making in the beginning of this letter. And what he's saying by what we've seen and heard and touched is Jesus was real. He was really human. Now, believe it or not, for the first three or 400 years, there was a huge fight that went on about that. Then it kind of got won over to the traditional position. And now in our own days and age, back in the early 19th century, there has become a new fight about that, really. There are all kinds of people out there that do not believe you have to have an experience with Jesus to be a Christian. They do not believe that it has to be so real you can touch him or hear him or see him because, after all, you can't really do that, at least not in the same way those early disciples did. They get caught up in the idea that it can be just this uh, esoteric kind of philosophical thing that we believe in, this resurrected Christ, but certainly you don't have to believe that Jesus was with God and then became a baby human. Well, that's just kind of unmiraculous, too miraculous rather to be believed, and so unrealistic that many people just kind of grin at the idea. Well, here's the, the awful truth about that from a purely biblical position is that was the very essence of what these first believers taught. Jesus was a human being just like us. And though we touched him and he was really human, he was also with God before he became human. That's what John said in his prologue to the Gospel of John. That's what he's reiterating again here in this way in this letter to John. Christian faith without God entering earth is, is a fable about a man who lived and died. Christian faith without a God so powerful that not only could he become flesh, but that he could be resurrected for sin is what the Christian faith is about if you're going to get to doctrine. But you know what he said all that was for? He wanted to tell them all that so that they'd be sure that they could have fellowship with them as well as with God the Father and the Son. And then they could have fellowship together as the body of Christ. This koinonia is based on a common kind of experience, if you will. I'm going to come back to that at the end. And this experience is a powerful one. It's the word of life. It's the word of light. It's the word of love. All throughout John's writings, you find these things. Life, light, and love. That's what the word of life was. Now, what does that mean to us? Well, first of all, we have to be careful here because Right thinking about who Jesus was is very important. Because Christ, you see, is the fulcrum, the fulcrum, if you will, on which right theology is balanced. 
More people got into heaven from my perspective when I realized one day that you don't go to heaven because of right theology. I was so glad because I had been taught by some professors. I was convinced they were going to hell, and that was going to be embarrassing. (laughs) I'm serious. (laughs) I heard some things teachers say, and I was aghast as a young country boy who had a simple kind of faith, and they certainly didn't. And I really thought they were lost because of the lack of right theology. Now, right theology is important. Don't get me wrong. What you believe and what you believe about Jesus and the knowledge you have about understanding Jesus leads to better and better theology. But if right theology gets you to heaven, which denomination is going to be in heaven? Simple question, right? Moi. Right? I mean, the rest of them, they're somewhere else. But we know that's not true. And yet, right theology has its place, and it's important. Sometimes people get irritated with me because I speak of other denominations, and I understand that. I even believe they're probably right. But it communicates so clearly about what one denomination believes as opposed to what other denominations don't. You say, yeah, but most denominations don't really know what they believe. I know. Isn't that sad? Isn't that sad? If I tied you down, what kind of creed could you write without just quoting the Apostles' Creed? What could you tell me about the scriptures that really strike home with you? What could you tell me about you and the way you live your life that is United Methodist as opposed to some other theological branch, all of which have some kind of integrity. So right doctrine and right thinking, while important, cannot get in the way of what is essential for people's salvation. That's a very freeing statement once you understand it. I believe a lot of those people now I've argued with for years are going to still be in heaven. (laughs) They may might even believe, if they understand what I'm talking about today, that I'll be there too, which will be really hard for some of them. I understand that. It's the way life is, isn't it? We interpret the faith, and we hold on to that thing in which we interpret, and we kind of believe it goes along about the same. But what happens to fellowship when we start quarreling about doctrine? It's what caused the first Protestant Reformation, is it not? What we believed about Scripture, what we believed about salvation, what we didn't believe was different from the Protestant churches, Protestant thought, than was what was going on in the Roman Catholic Church or the Eastern Orthodox Church. And so there was a split. What happens when a church can't agree on the theology of whether the carpet should be red or blue in their sanctuary? Sometimes you have another congregation down the street one block over. You can disagree about all kinds of things that are important. And I'm not saying to throw away all that you believe. I'm not. Yet we have to realize that our theological differences can be set aside if we can learn to talk primarily about who was and is Jesus. And was he the God among us who died for our sins, was resurrected in whom we could believe? I would make the case that if you're going to talk about belief, that is a simple place to start. 
and something that most, if not every Christian, should be able to understand and talk about. However, when you get down to this idea of experience being key, it gets messy too, doesn't it? If the thing that really holds us together is our experience of Jesus, that experience is different, isn't it? We don't all reason and come to the same conclusion. We don't all pray and hear God in the same way. We don't all even read the scriptures and interpret them the same way as Christians. So it makes it difficult for the church to come together and to truly be the body of Christ because of our differences as opposed to the strength of that which is central. Every good Baptist I know says you have to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Every good Methodist I know says almost the same thing. Every good Assembly of God I know says almost the same thing. Every Roman Catholic I know, I want to believe they believe that same thing. But they have been taught so strongly that the church is responsible for their salvation. I'm never quite comfortable. I'm never quite for sure if I understand where they really are. But experience can be a really dangerous thing if that's all we have and there's no right theology. We can get ecstatic and charismatic. We can hop and shout. We can roll around the floors. We can jump through the windows. Or we can be intensely silent and reflective and meditative. And those are all good Christian experiences. But every one of them must be informed by something. Every one of them has to have a right theology. But the right theology should not be imposed upon anyone before they're ready for it. Except in preaching. And especially my preaching. You could go somewhere else and hear some really bad ideas. They would think the Methodists were wrong. Shame on them. If the thing that holds us together, however, is a, compel- a compelling experience with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who became flesh, lived and died and was resurrected on the third day among us, then we ought to be able to hold hands over almost everything else. That's what I'm believe this passage is about today. Yes, it's important we do Christian things. Obedience is the goal. But man, how long is that obedient journey going to be? I mean, it seems a lot longer today than it did last Sunday. Everything last Sunday was perfect. Jesus died for me. I was a saved sinner and everything was great. And then this week came along and I started, you know, everything wasn't so great. My mind got cloudy. I got busy. I got in my routines. I got doing, doing my work. I got to worrying about people, you know, and I forgot that we're all still that saved person. I I say this to say this. Last week, I had a letter about experience from someone who I think is a believer, but they've not been in church for many years. If they're not a believer, they're at least at this point in their life, a seeker. And I struggled with whether or not I was going to say this or not. Let me just say it this way. I'm going to say it, but I'm going to starch it out a little bit. I got the nicest, most flattering letter about Cindy Shirley that I've ever received in 35 years about a fellow pastor. In detail. It was about a person who called the church looking for a pastor to help help her in her hour of need. She didn't go to church because the church 
would not be very open to her because she was not a part of a fellowship of believers, but she knew she needed a church. And what she told, she felt the need to tell me in detail exactly everything that Cindy had done. I shall never erase that from my phone. Because that reminded me of how a lost and hurting world is looking for somebody who comes from the church to enter into their painful moments and to be the church. And Cindy did it so beautifully with her loving spirit. Now, I know her theology wouldn't have agreed probably with the people she's involved with to a, to a large extent. But she set all that aside because they were hurting people and they needed to receive ministry from Jesus Christ. And she brought that to them as Christ worked through her. And Cindy's not in the church this morning. She's doing other things. But I want to share that with you because I want you to understand what a church really is. A church is really a hospital that receives people who are not following the Scriptures who are sinners and they know it. In fact, some of them are proud of it. They're defiant about law because they have not learned to give into any law and especially not the church's law. They're defiant because they don't like institutions. They don't like rules. Many of them are saying they don't need the church. Well, you know what? This text says they're wrong because this text says that what Christians need most, first and foremost, is fellowship with a body of believers. You don't get to fellowship just with yourself. And inward fellowship with just you and God, baby, you know, like Wild Wild West, we're independent. Jesus and I are good. Jesus and y'all, I don't know so much about y'all. Well, here's the message I have for them, whenever they can hear it. It's, it's good for you to be good with Jesus, but if you're good with Jesus and not good with the rest of the body of the fellowship of Christ, you're not as good with Jesus as you think. Because this is not a solitary religion. It was never meant to be, and it never has been. The Bible knows nothing about individual solitary faith that's apart from the body of Christ. Now, I only say that to churches, knowing that you're already here. I wouldn't say that just anywhere I go, because a lot of people come and tell me, well, I'm Christian. I say, you are. That's good. Which church do you go to? Well, I haven't gone to church in the last 15 years. You know, I had a problem, and I just... So I say, okay, well, let's talk about that. Tell me what happened. What could be so bad that you never went back to any church that happened at one church that caused you and a whole generation to think that the church is somehow the problem? Well, they're wrong. But we can't get them back by going out there and saying, you better get your tail in church, sinner. And they'll go, yeah, I know that's what y'all all are saying about all of us who aren't in there with you. And we are. We are saying that. But what we're also saying is we need to be here too because we're sinners too. But they don't know that because they're not coming because of the way we act and interact with them when we get out in the world. I think I'm through now. This was a good passage but a difficult passage and it says something to us that's very important. Being a Christian is not easy. It's not easy being a Christian community because it throws us into fellowship with other denominations and expressions of faith that we don't always agree with. 
And we offend many people as evangelical Christians because we believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. And they hear that in a way that we don't mean that. And when they threaten us by saying that we're judgmental because we believe that Jesus is the only way, we feel the need to stand up for Jesus. And sometimes what we need to be is we need to sit down with them in Jesus. We need to sit down and hold their hand for a while because they've been hurt, they've been wounded, they've misunderstood, they've been misled often, and they need a new experience with the resurrected Jesus that is not one that's primarily based on judgment but primarily based on forgiveness because let's face it, if Jesus is mostly judgment, I'm going to be a lonely pastor. (laughs) It is funny, isn't it, when you say it that way? But it's true. And you know what? If that's the way Jesus is, you're not going to have a pastor this size, this old, and living at my address. Because I'm clear that I'm a long way from not being a sinner. I'm clear about that. Now, I intend to be better next week than I am this week. But after a lot, a lot of weeks, the closer I get, the more I understand how sinful I am. It's kind of like being married. <laughs> yeah, you're wondering where I'm going after that one, right? <laughs> well, I'm not going the way you think I'm going. Trust me. The longer you're married, the deeper way you understand your mate, your partner, and the deeper they understand you. There's no way to get there except after years and years. I get tickled at young couples who say, Oh, I know everything about my mate. And, you know, everything makes me happy that I know about them. And I always just smile and say, well, wake up. You'll get married, and three weeks later, you'll know a lot more stuff about them. (laughs) And, you know, it won't all make you as happy as you think it'll be. But the love you have for them will still be real. But just let me promise you that, you, you know, they're not perfect. I know them, and they're not. One of them I usually know at least. And I can tell them, nope, I know that person. They're really sweet, but they're not nearly as sweet as you think they are. And that is a story of us all. That's why we need each other. I need you. And you. And you. And maybe you need me. We need them. And the thems out there need us. But they don't know that we need them Because we let a lot of wrong or right theology get into the wrong discussions. There's a time for you to be taught. Every now and then I've had to tell Sally, Sally, I'm sure you're right. Talk to me about it tomorrow. Because today I can't hear you. And after 42 years, I can assure you that that's an important lesson to learn for both ways. Because even Doug, I know this is a shock for you, even Doug is not perfect. Ah, I'm glad my grandchildren aren't in here. They're not, Miller's not in here, is he? Okay, he's gone. That's good. Because, you know, there's nothing like being a grandparent in a child's eye until their parent comes home, and then they don't love you at all. Just right off they go. Fortunately, as the songs have been sung this morning, 
we can say words like, how can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Can it really be that he died for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued? That's amazing love. How can it be that thou, our God, can love me? That's what Easter's about. And we need to never forget it. We need to practice every Sunday morning as if it's Easter. And we need to open ourselves up to the light of the life that was in Jesus Christ so that we might see where God needs to work. So that we might open ourselves so that God can work. God bless you. If you're here today and you don't know a loving Savior who takes you just as you are but refuses to leave you where you are, I'd like to introduce you to Jesus Christ as we stand and sing this closing hymn.